Turn to First Kings chapter 21. First Kings chapter 21. Thankful for those who came this morning and all those who've tuned in and who will watch later on. Before he even died, we read Ahab's epitaph, and it was a pitiful one, not one I want written on my tombstone. In fact, it's written in verse 25, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 21, and we read verse 25 and studied it last week. Here's the epitaph. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel's wife stirred up. How'd you like to have that? printed that little paragraph on your tombstone not me i don't want any of my works on there in fact the work that i was depending on and still am is the one at the cross so that's all that needs to be said about that now in verse 26 which is the new part of our study continues actually the rest of this epitaph It says this about Ahab, and he did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. As we have seen in the case of many kings before him, Ahab did exactly what God warned the children of Israel not to do. He committed abomination by following idols. When God had told the children of Israel not to make idols in the first place, and certainly not to bow down to them, in fact, not to serve any other gods. So in giving those commandments, God cut off all the loopholes that man tends to find when he's trying to justify his sin. God drove out the Amorites who did make, who did serve, and who did follow other gods. He drove them out so his people would not be defiled by them and by their religious exercises. But, as our text indicates, Ahab became as they were. Ahab, just like we, was without excuse He had the law of God at his fingertips. And if he forgot something, all he had to do is summon one of the Levites and say, Hey, remind me what that says right there. He had the law of God at his fingertips. And he had the example God made of all idolaters who were cut off before him. He had that in the writings of the prophets and in the Torah. And so what that shows us is that merely having God's word at your fingertips is not going to prevent you from worshiping idols. We have to be separated from idolaters, separated from idolatry. There are two New Testament passages that tell us what God expects of his people when it comes to this matter of separation from idolaters. If you're writing this down, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 11, where Paul wrote, But now 
I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. And you notice in that passage the words keep company, which mean to mingle or to mix with. The Corinthian example is that of one who is called a brother, who is, in our case that we're studying this morning, an idolater. And just as Ahab, those Christian Corinthians, or Corinthian Christians, however you want to call them, had God's word at their fingertips. They had been taught by the Apostle Paul. They were communicating with him by letters as well. Shouldn't that have been enough to keep them from idolatry? That they had God's word at their fingertips? If they always walked by faith, it would be enough. So where's the problem? It's not with God's word being ineffectual, because it's not. When it's believed and adhered to by faith, it works every time. But when the flesh is involved, in other words, when we don't walk by faith, we're walking by sight, we're walking in the flesh, then idolatry cometh, drunkenness cometh, railing, extortion, fornication, all of those things are so easy to do. So we're instructed not to keep company with those who walk in the flesh. The fornication and idolaters and, and all of that that the script, scriptures talk about. In other words, don't go to their party. You can't go to their party and say, well, I'll just drink water while they drink liquor. You're overestimating your flesh when you do that. You're underestimating the power that Satan has. The second New Testament passage that refers to this matter of separating from idolaters is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians three thirteen through 14. It says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, that is, the word of God, if any man obey not the word of God, note that man... And have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Have no company is from the same words as keep company in the other text I read you. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In both New Testament verses we just read, the word brother is mentioned. So what might we learn here? Have, number one, have no company with idolaters, those who refuse to believe God's word. And admonish or warn the idolaters who are called brothers. You're going to be, if you do this, you will be criticized by religious and non-religious folks alike for having this kind of mindset. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church who exercised scriptural church discipline on someone 
who had walked away from the Lord, somebody who was living in open sin, perhaps adultery or whatever it may be, stealing from the church. And that person was given the opportunity to repent. They did not. One went to them. That didn't work. Two went to them. That didn't work. It was brought before the church. The church exercised scriptural church discipline, which is the only acceptable kind, in fact. And the person was cut off from fellowship. They weren't treated as an enemy. They were cut off from fellowship with the prayer that they would repent and be restored. And if you've ever been a part of a church that has done that, the criticism that comes is not just from people outside the doors. It's people inside the the house as well who allow the feelings and emotions to get in the way. And I understand that. I've been part of this before. I've been a part of non-scriptural discipline that was exercised upon people causing them to leave when they, in fact, were the ones in the right and not in the wrong. But the Bible tells us very plainly in the two passages we read, and it's not up for debate, that we're not to keep company with idolaters. In our flesh, we are not strong enough to mingle with people who are committing those sins, namely while they're committing them. Now, if you think, well, Brother Andy, does that mean I can't say hello or tell somebody I'm praying for them if they're an idolater? Not at all. You're not to mingle with them. In other words, don't think you can go into, I'll just use Buddhists for an example, don't think you can go into a Buddhist monastery every week after you leave church and say, well, I have a friend who's a monk, and I'm just going to go sit through those uh, sessions or whatever they call them, their worship services, and, and I'll still believe in my God. Don't overestimate your flesh and think, well, I can, I can do this and still be okay. Again, you're underestimating the power that Satan has over the flesh. In Ahab's case, these Amorites were not called brothers like they are in the Corinthian and Thessalonian passages. And because of that, God did not tell Ahab and the children of Israel to admonish the Amorites as brothers. He said, I'm going to cast them out. They're not your brothers. They're not your brothers in the flesh. They're not your brothers in the spirit. They worship pagan gods. They don't worship the one true God. We're not going to admonish them. They're out of here. And by not separating himself from those Amorite idolaters, Ahab was guilty of following idols according to all things as did the Amorites. If you look back in your text there in verse 26. That's what it says in, in the verse. In following idols according to all things as did the Amorites. According to all things. In other words, he did it like they did it. And why do you think he did it like they did it? Because he kept company with them. He mingled with them. Peer pressure is real, isn't it? It was real in these days. Popular opinion is real. What they have in common is that they both lift up the flesh while harming the spirit. They don't take into consideration what God's word says and put it first. Don't keep company with idolaters. You know, to, to people who are here or watching on the internet, 
it may or may have caused you to leave a church that's preaching another gospel. It may cause you to have to get out of some so-called private Bible study group because one of the leaders or perhaps the members teach and believe some heresy. And oh, if Ahab would have not followed idols according to all things the Amorites did, he wouldn't be in this situation. When God cast them out, if Ahab would have treated them as cast out, he wouldn't have been in this situation. Now look in verse 27. Now these are all things, if you remember, that Elijah told Ahab. He is shelling the corn. Verse 27, and it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. Those words, those words are the ones from verses 20 through 24 that we studied last week. They were hard words. That was hard preaching. But it was the word of the Lord to Ahab. When I read this verse... Verse 27, my first thought was how merciful God is to sinners. Nobody would have given Ahab this many chances. Mankind would have written him off a long time ago. And maybe we would have punished him for his sins without any mercy. But God sees and thinks and acts differently than we do. And I'm glad he does, Brother Doug. I'm glad he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It said that he rent his clothes. That means he tore them. And you know, these were the clothes of a king. And now they're torn, they're rent. And this, to me, is an admission by him that his power as a king is now null and void in the face of the Lord. All the power he had as a king does him no good. What he needs to do is throw that power off and humble himself. And that's what he's doing here. said he put sackcloth upon his flesh. The sackcloth being that mesh type of bag. Now, what would we call that in East Texas? That's a toe sack, isn't it? Yeah, that's what that is. Sackcloth. Wouldn't be very comfortable to wear. He put that on his flesh. He fasted. That is, he denied himself the food that is pleasing to the flesh. And he lay in sackcloth. To lie down is to be in the most submissive position you can be in. You can't get any lower than when you lie down, not physically. And then the verse says at the end, he went softly. That means gently. He came and went Gently, he didn't march around in his kingly apparel with his entourage, letting everybody know I'm the king. Jezebel probably wouldn't have allowed that anyway. But he went softly. That Hebrew word is actually translated in another place as gently. In the passage where David asked Joab, Abishai, and Ittai to deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. This was David's son who had tried to take his father's throne and have David killed. So Ahab was not strutting around here as a monarch, but he was going about his way gently, 
humbly. And all of the things Ahab did in verse 27 are outward signs of humility, of being humbled. They're outward signs, things we can all see. And although, and get this, although those outward signs of humility should be a reflection of the inward condition of humility, don't be fooled. You see somebody, and we don't encourage this in our church because we know what it usually is. But if you saw somebody come up here and throw themselves down on the steps and say, Oh, I'm going to rededicate myself to the Lord and all of these things that I've seen in the church before, most of the time that's a bunch of hogwash. A person doesn't. We watch them after, after they do it. And it was a bunch of outward stuff, but there's not any sign of an inward change, a long-term, a lasting change. And so Ahab does this. Oh, there's no telling how many people saw him in sackcloth, humbling himself before the Lord. And really only God knows for sure whether the outward signs of humility are reflective of an inward change. God's the only one who knows for sure. So by the same token, if somebody were to make some sort of outward gesture of humility, we may have doubts, but we really don't know, do we, as to whether there's a change in the inward man. But I will tell you this, the change needs to be inward. Because if it's outward and not inward, then there's no change at all. It's just a show. So we'll see if Ahab was just putting on a show or if he was really repentant. You know, the hymn that we sometimes sing, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, it has a phrase in one of the verses, The arm of flesh will fail you, you dare not trust your own. And the arm of flesh is the the part of us that would do something like this, put on the sackcloth and ashes and, and so forth, acting as though we are repenting. Now look down in verse 29, 28. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. When God brings evil upon a person, it does not mean God is evil. It means that God is directing the evil that's already here in one direction or in the other to accomplish his sovereign purpose. And we don't always understand that sovereign purpose. Only when he declares it to us. But only God and Ahab knew Ahab's heart. Whether he truly humbled himself in God's sight and humbled is bowed the knee. That's the literal meaning of it, bowed the knee. It doesn't tell us whether Ahab's motive was pure or whether it would be lasting, but we'll know soon enough if it's declared here in the Scripture. And in this respect, God is treating Ahab's case kind of like he did Solomon's case. Remember, he told Solomon, hey, some bad things are going to happen. I'm going to tear the kingdom into ten and two. Ten nations go here and two go here. But I'm not going to do it during your days. I'm going to do it when your son takes over as ruler. That was Rehoboam. And so that's when the kingdom was torn in half. Rehoboam taking the the one 
part of the kingdom and Jeroboam taking the other. Jeroboam taking the ten kingdom, ten nations. In fact, it's just a matter of review here. Back in 1 Kings chapter 11, we studied this, but I'll read it again. Verses 11 through 13. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it, for David thy father's sake. But I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son, for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. As God was chastening Solomon, he still showed mercy. And he is going to show mercy to Ahab, even though he's going to bring evil to pass because of Ahab's great sin. He's going to do it after Ahab goes. Now chapter 22, verse 1, And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. It's amazing to me, maybe to you, that God would give peace to a king who was an idolater and a nation whose majority had bowed the knee to Baal. What did God say to Elijah when he was under the gourd? He said, I have reserved unto me 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's not very many. 7,000 is a lot to us, but when you compare it with an entire nation, it's not a lot. It's a very small percentage. So verse 1 lets us know there are three years without any significant event occurring. It's as though Israel, as well as her king, are going about softly, are going about gently. And God said that the reason he would not bring this evil to pass in Ahab's day was because Ahab humbled himself. God's merciful, isn't he? We haven't seen anything in Ahab's life that would commend him to us, that would make us want to dispense grace to him. That's why God's in charge of that. Verse 2, And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. This verse doesn't tell us why the king of Judah came down to the king of Israel. But we may get a little little bit of light if we look at a parallel passage that describes this same set of events. And if you'll just write down Second Chronicles 18, verses 1 through 2. Second Chronicles 18, verses 1 through 2. And if you're new to our study, either here or online, uh, the, the Chronicles and the books of the Chronicles and the books of the Kings often parallel one another. And one may give a little more detail about an event than the other. So sometimes we consult them in our study. And this is a parallel verse. Here's what it says. Second Chronicles 18 verses 1 through 2. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance and joined in affinity with Ahab. And after certain years he went down to Ahab and to Samaria. And Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance and for the people that he had with him, and persuaded him to go up with him 
to Ramoth-Gilead. So when Jehoshaphat came to Samaria to commune with the king of Israel, with Ahab, there was a lot more than them just being in the same city. They, they ate together. It said they had an affinity together. Now, how about that? It was God's perfect will that Israel never be divided, that they always be one. And yet, because of their sin, he divided them. And now, this king, these two kings are coming together to try to unite. But what you're going to see is that uniting in this way, and for the reasons they unite, is not God's perfect will. It's going to be a mess. Right now, it looks pretty good, doesn't it? The king of Israel and the king of Judah are together. What a wonderful reunion it seems to be. Verse 3, And the king of Israel, now that's Ahab, said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria. Ahab has his own plans here, doesn't he? Remember this from Second Samuel chapter 8 in the first part of verse 6. If you're taking notes, put Second Samuel 8, 6, little letter A. That lets you know it's not the entire verse. And it said, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. Now keep that in mind. Ramoth in Gilead, also called Ramoth Gilead, belonged to the tribe of Gad. And so that land would have rightly belonged to the northern kingdom, to the ten tribes uh, over which Ahab was the ruler. And in Joshua chapter 20 verse 8 is where you see that Ramoth Gilead belongs to the tribe of Gad. If the children of Israel had not given Ramoth of Gilead to the Syrians in the first place, and if the Syrians were still servants to Israel like they were in David's day, there would have been no need to have this discussion at all. That is, should we go back and take Ramoth of Gilead? It's ours. Well, you gave it away. You gave it away because of your sin. You didn't do what God said by conquering all of your enemies and driving them out and not doing as they do and not following their idols. And now you want it back again in idolatry? That's, that's the irony that's before us there in those verses. Verse 4, And he, that's Ahab, said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. Now we'll go to verse 5, and that'll modify what Jehoshaphat just said, but let's just look at verse 4 for a moment. This unity was commendable, but we have two different types of kings in our text. We've got Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And we have Ahab the idolater. And we have Jehoshaphat, the one who sought the Lord. 
In fact, if you look ahead in 1 Kings 22, and we'll read this uh, maybe in a week or two when we get to verse 43, the first part of verse 43, we see what Jehoshaphat's epitaph would one day be. And it said about Jehoshaphat later in his life, And he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what do we know about Ahab? He did worse than all the kings who were before him. Different epitaph. Now, what had Jehoshaphat just done right here? He mingled with an idolater. He's mingling with an idolater, and it's going to have an effect on him. You're going to see something else in Jehoshaphat's epitaph when we get to it, and that something else will prove to you what happens when you keep company with an idolater. Even under the guise of unity. You know, when when you hear a politician say, I want to bring the country together, I want us all to be in unity, normally what they mean is, I want everybody to agree with me. That's unity. Well, that's not unity. That's not possible. We're not all going to agree on anything when it comes to the flesh. We're not. All of us in here have different tastes and clothing and food and activities, things we like to do things we don't like to do. Where we come into unity is the unity of the faith in God's Word. And so, of course, my prayer is that everyone in here and then those who watch online and those, in fact, who call them Christians all over the world would believe the same thing we believe, and that is that God's Word is true. But outside of that, you're going, even even in the observance of uh, church people have different ways of doing things. Some have a long music service. Some others have different things that happen during their eleven o'clock or ten o'clock hour. We don't even all do that correctly. But when it comes down to it, we better believe the same book and believe that it's true. Verse five. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel. Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Now, you just told him, hey, look, I'm, I'm one with you. I'm as you are, my people as you are, my horses, all that. We're, we're all one. We're brothers. However, would you go see what God has to say about this? Man, that's about the best requirement you can impose upon somebody. It says the inquiry was to be at the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat wanted to know what God would say about going to war with Israel and trying to take back Ramoth Gilead. When someone, no matter who it is, suggests to you that you should get involved with them in some sort of act, whether it's a business venture or anything else, then I admonish you to inquire at the word of the Lord. And he said today, did you see that at the end of verse five? He said today, he said right now, before you do it, don't do it. And then later on say, boy, I hope what I'm doing is scriptural and start looking it up. Well, you're already neck deep in it, aren't you? It's a lot harder to extract yourself from it than it would have been to just walk away in the first place. He said, inquire at the word of the Lord today. Because the Bible, God's word, 
is the touchstone for whether anything we do or think or say is right or wrong. It's the touchstone. And when we get through with the Proverbs, if, if you think you can honestly say, there's just some principles in my life that aren't covered by the Bible, then I'm going to accuse you of not having come to church at all. Because they're there. They're there just in the Proverbs, those principles. Whether it's about family, children, uh, relationships between business partners, the stranger, wisdom, all of that is contained in the Proverbs and throughout the rest of God's Word. So I like it that Jehoshaphat said, we're one, but... Let's check with God and see if he's good with this or not. Now, what had Ahab already decided? He already decided, we're going to do this. He didn't consult God. So now his mindset and the mindset of the people who follow him is, we're going to go take Ramoth Gilead and we're going to have the king of Judah with us. And now Jehoshaphat throws the Bible out there and says, hey, let's see what God has to say about it. Verse 6, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? That means not go. And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now don't miss what Ahab does and says here. Jehoshaphat said to Ahab, Inquire at the word of the Lord today. And instead, Ahab gathers 400 prophets. Now when's the last time we came across 400 and some odd prophets? Who were wrong. Those are the prophets of Baal, weren't they? The number 400, by the way, does not impress God, and it doesn't impress Elijah, and it shouldn't impress Ahab, but he called 400 prophets. And these prophets were either Baal's prophets or sellouts, and really they're the same thing. Ahab did not demand that these prophets inquire at the word of the Lord. He didn't say, Tell me the word of the Lord. He said, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead or not? He took a straw poll, didn't he? Kind of like a coach's poll. What do you coaches think out there? Who do you think the best team is? And the prophets said with one voice to go. To go and that the Lord would deliver Ramoth Gilead to them. After all, how can 400 prophets be wrong? Surely their agreement, he thought, meant that the Lord will deliver Ramoth Gilead into their hands. Verse 7. Now, think about this. You've got 400 prophets who've all given one voice in agreement. Go and take it, king. And look what Jehoshaphat does. This makes me want to give him a big bro hug right here. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? What did Jehoshaphat know? Whatever they're saying, these aren't prophets of the Lord. I can tell that, that by their doctrine, their preaching, whatever it is, they're not prophets of the Lord. Do you have a Bible teacher here somewhere, a Bible prophet? He dismissed all of those prophets that Ahab had. What a statement. And in verse 8, here's the answer from the king. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, 
the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. He said, There is yet one man. You know, that's all God uses when he uses a prophet, isn't it? He didn't send two or three prophets to David to say, Thou art the man. He didn't send two or three prophets to Ahab to tell him all the evil that was going to befall them that for th- until he prayed again, there'd be no rain. He sent one. And as if to diminish, there is yet one man. In other words, there, you know, we didn't scrub the whole pot. There's a little piece of food right there. Yeah, there's one more prophet here. You're right. We didn't get all of them up here. There are 401. But I don't like him. He doesn't say nice things about me. That sounds about like a seventh grader, doesn't it? And this man's a king of Israel. Now, Ahab, when he said, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, what did Ahab just admit without even really thinking about it? He just admitted that he deliberately inquired of prophets who were not God's prophets. And he deliberately avoided inquiring of the one man who was God's prophet, who would inquire at the Lord. And why did Ahab first call the 400? Because he wanted a rubber stamp on his plan to seize Ramoth Gilead. He called 400 and he left out one. Now, in the world's view, that would be absolutely insignificant. You know, when we have a meeting of any kind of an official meeting, whether it's of a governing board or when the legislature meets or when a a grand jury convenes to decide whether a person will be uh, charged with a felony, they have what is called a quorum and a quorum is the minimum, and I know you may know this, it's the minimum num- minimum number of people who may be present and still allow that committee, that group, that legislature to function. Everybody doesn't have to be there. If this senator can't make it because he's sick or this grand juror is uh, having a baby, well, the other grand jurors can meet, and as long as there are nine in the case of Texas... They don't have to have all 12 there to make their decision. And so perhaps Ahab was operating off of the the quorum principle. Well, what's the hurt of having one prophet left out? Well, the hurt is that's the only guy who's going to tell you the truth. (laughs) He's the one that you need. That's like going to to play football with a bunch of kids and somebody forgot to bring the football. That's a pretty important thing if you're going to play that little game, isn't it? And here, much more important was that God's prophet was left out. And he said, he didn't call him, he said, I hate him. Now, how could one Israelite hate another? If they were in fellowship with God's word and fellowship with each other, this would be impossible. But it doesn't say that Micaiah said, well, I hate him too. I don't think Micaiah hated the king at all. And we don't. When people hate us, we don't say, well, then I hate you too. Little kids might say that, and we have to teach them not to do that. Well, I hate you back. Well, that's just being ugly. But we don't hate people. Do we hate their sin? Absolutely. We hate our own sin. 
I don't just hate your sin. I hate mine. I don't like it. And why does he hate Micaiah? Why does Ahab hate Micaiah? He said in the verse 8, For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. So really, all of this prophecy, all of these prophets, this whole show to Ahab is not about the truth. It's about himself being propped up. He is the center of his own religion. It's not even Baal. He didn't say he'd prophesize evil concerning Baal, which I'm sure Micaiah would do. He said he prophesied evil concerning me. He didn't prophesy good. And this is why Christians are hated today when they try to teach people God's word. This is why religious people, even many so-called evangelicals, hate preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we prophesy not good but evil concerning the false prophet. And there are many of them in the pulpits across the world. And we're called narrow-minded. You know, we're outnumbered by the prophets of Baal, aren't, aren't we? But we speak according to the word of the Lord, just like Micaiah did. We inquire at the word of the Lord. And if we're not, we're in trouble. And if you have a pastor who's not inquiring at the word of the Lord, you need to get rid of him or you need to leave one of the two. And I'm thankful here our pastor inquires at the word of the Lord. What else can you ask of him? Inquire at the word of the Lord, and it has all the other instructions that we need to be able to run our business here at the church. They're all in there. I'll give you a a passage, Luke 21, verses 15 through 17. Luke 21, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. What did, what did Ahab say about Micaiah? He said, I hate him. And Micaiah was just speaking the wisdom that God had given him. And his adversaries, Ahab and all those prophets and then all of the other unbelievers in Israel, were not able to gainsay or resist it. They couldn't fight against it. Oh, they could disobey it. They could disagree, but they can't overthrow it because it's God's word. And in both Micaiah's days and in our days, in the last days, Jesus gives us a mouth and wisdom, just as he said in Luke, and we shall be hated for speaking it. You don't have to go around and try to stir people up by being hateful or pointing fingers or any of that. You can simply present them God's word in the spirit of love, and they're going to hate you enough for that because you're going to trip up their religion. You're going to trip up what they believe about how to be accepted by God. And then he's at the end of verse 8, Jehoshaphat heard all that from Ahab's mouth, and he said, let not the king say so. In other words, the king should not say that. There are other translations that render it that way. The king shouldn't say that. Psalm 119, verse 46. Psalm 119, by the way, is a long psalm. It's the longest one, but it's good reading. 
The psalmist wrote, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. That was Micaiah right there. He didn't write that psalm, but he certainly could have. He spoke of the testimonies of the Lord before the king. He said, king, he's about to anyway, when we get to that part of the study. And he's not ashamed. And Joseph Jehoshaphat was not ashamed to rebuke Ahab because the testimonies of the Lord were precious to Jehoshaphat and they were not to Ahab. And next week, we're going to look at what this prophet of the Lord, the one who will inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, says to the king. We'll close for now. Father, thank you for the good attention of those who came. Thank you for the words on this page which are settled forever in heaven and the truths that we've gleaned from them are precious to us who are your people. And I pray you'd help us to never depart from them, though we be hated by the world, for inquiring at the word of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.